1: Hi, I'm Deb Blaschenberg and I am your host of Yoga Birth Babies. Today we're going to talk about postpartum anxiety and postpartum depression medication and breastfeeding. There is a lot of thought about that and sometimes there's some stigma about that. Sometimes there's some fear about that. And so we're going to get to the bottom of discussing breastfeeding your child while taking any sort of mood-stabilizing medication. So to have this conversation, I have Heather O'Neill and Maureen Farrell. They are midwives and lactation professionals. They also have an amazing podcast called The Milk Minute, which I am so excited that I got to be on. So make sure you listen to that. Let me tell you a little bit more about Heather and Maureen. So their mission is to increase access to lactation education for All types of families, including partners, and acknowledging the importance of mental health and parenthood and improve body positivity. These ladies have so much amazing information that... And we get into the nitty gritty. Should they even go down to talk about different types of medication, more popular brands, and how it can come into breast milk and all about antidepressants and psychotropic medications while nursing. So I think if you are concerned about that, if you feel overwhelmed by maybe you're on medication and you're considering breastfeeding your child, in any sort of way of lactation, this can help you have some clarity. And of course, always, always, always check with your care provider as well. But if it's something that has just been lingering in your mind, I hope this conversation gives you some peace of mind. Now, before we get to that, I just want to go over some stuff happening at PYC. So what's happening? It is, as I'm filming, as I'm recording this, we are halfway through the summer and we're in our summer schedule. So we still have online classes seven days a week. And we have in-studio classes five days a week now come the fall. I'm planning on adding some more classes to that. We're slowly getting back to our pre-pandemic in-class workshops and and schedules. In fact, our workshops are doing amazingly well. So if you are wanting to do workshops in the studio, you can do them online. And we also have an amazing on-demand library. You can check all that out. The next thing I want to share is about our teacher training. So if you are a yoga teacher and you get really jazzed up about supporting the perinatal community, our training is really in-depth, really comprehensive, and fun. So you can check that out. We do it in person twice a year and online twice a year. So check all that out on our website at prenatalyogacenter.com. And while you're on our website for those that are their teachers or you're in the perinatal community, you can download our free downloadable five simple solutions to the most common pregnancy pains. Because I know you can't make it to class every day. So, And you probably still have some sort of ache and pain every day. So I want to help you take care of that. All right. The last thing I want to do is just thank you. I know that continuing to show up as a community member, whether it's in person, whether it's online, whether it's just leaving a review, whether it's being a community member, I listen to the podcast. I want you to know that I appreciate it and we are marking 20 years of since the creation of PYC, and it's pretty amazing. So thank you for stepping alongside with me on this amazing journey. All right, that is enough. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, please enjoy my conversation with Heather and Maureen.
2: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW, void, for prohibited by loss. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hi, Heather. Hi, Maureen.
3: How are you? Hi, we're super great and happy to be on your show. Yes, we
1: are pumped. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Yay. I'm really excited about what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about medication, postpartum, anxiety, and depression medication, and breastfeeding. I know this is a topic that people want to hear about because my students have told me, can you please do a podcast on this? So I'm really excited. <laughs> so I guess before we get into the nitty gritty, I want to learn a little bit about both of you and how you both ended up. In the lactation world, and then just a little bit about yourselves.
3: Sure. You want to go first? I always
1: want to go first, <laughs> of course. So, I'm a
0: certified nurse midwife, and I got into midwifery because my mom actually got pregnant when I was 16. And I always wanted to be an OBGYN and deliver babies. And I just was like called from an early age to work with birthing people. But um, my mom chose a midwife for her pregnancy. And I ended up going to all of her prenatal visits. And I was like, wow, this midwife is like being so personal with her. And it's so not like a baby story on TV, that crazy (laughs) show with the OBs that are always saving the day and problems that sometimes they cause themselves through intervention. So it kind of opened up this whole new world for me of, um, how you can help people. And so I went off on my journey to be a midwife. And then of course, like so many of us that end up in lactation, I had a difficult breastfeeding situation. I had a 36-week-old baby who was severely jaundiced and a not very supportive partner at the time. And you know, it was just very, very stressful to try to keep up my milk supply through working and pumping and and I didn't have a lot of money and resources. So um I just remember thinking, my God, I'm a smart person and I can't figure this out to help myself. And I can't imagine how other people feel. So um then I had my daughter and I became an IBCLC and I still had issues. Mm. Uh, I had just taken my IBCLC boards and I remember thinking at two o'clock in the morning, there's nowhere to get information at two AM. Like nowhere for free, you know, other than a scary Google rabbit hole that you go down. So that's kind of how I pulled Maureen in with the pandemic happening, and everybody was in that situation then where they needed something that was not expensive that they could access that was evidence-based. And I said, Maureen, and I (laughs) tapped her on the shoulder and we started the Milk Minute Podcast. And it's kind of been a two-year journey of just following the current events, which have been hard for people. And I don't see an end in sight. There's seemingly always something to solve with lactation. So, um and Maureen's got an equally, <laughs> <laughs> equally interesting story.
3: Yeah. Okay. So let's see, how did I get here? Um, I guess my like medical world <laughs> journey started actually with wilderness medicine and being a wilderness first responder Um and working at like summer camps and things like that, um, from which I ended up studying herbalism because they go really well hand in hand, like austere medicine and um, learning about the medicine that grows around us. <laughs> um, those things work really well, and I began to then learn about other emergency medicine and emergency birth. Um, so I was taking this emergency birth class, and the midwife who taught it was like, "Look, you would be a great doula." Like, you know, and I just had a a son at that point and had had kind of a hard breastfeeding um time, and she was like just just take my doula class and like let's let's see where it goes, um and I loved it and I was like yes I would make a great doula. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then, you know, as a requirement for the class, you had to do some kind of accessory lactation uh, education. So I was like, well, there's a, a CLC training in Pittsburgh, like in a month, I should just take that because that sounds like a great idea. And I loved it. Um And then, you know, at the same time, I began uh studying to be a home birth midwife through a traditional apprenticeship model. Um, and just sort of, I, I feel like a lot of that just sort of fell like in front of me and I tripped through it. Um, <laughs> and somehow like fell into 2020 with Heather having a lactation podcast. <laughs> um, and yeah, so here we are now, midwives, lactation professionals and doing an awful lot of talking to each other with a microphone. <laughs> How did you guys meet?
0: At a conference, <laughs> yeah. we met at a conference, and I was eight months pregnant with yeah. my daughter. And I was actually trolling for an OB who would sign on to be my collaborating physician, so I could have prescriptive authority. Yeah, and I could actually have my home birth practice and be full scope and be able to, you know, order my own pitocin. Because <laughs> um, in some states, it requires you to have a physician yeah. who just says, "Yeah, she's she's cool." You know, she can order that's it. That's basically all they do. <laughs> that's basically all they do. Like, they, they don't actually
3: check up on you. No. It's kind of a racket. We could, But that's a whole other thing. I was there with the Midwives Alliance of West Virginia. And we were like, I'm sorry, you're a midwife? Like, come into our little... Right. So I
0: joined the club and uh, I remember Maureen just sitting at one of the high top tables at the bar and and she was so full of righteous indignation. And I was (laughs) like, who is this chick? She hates the patriarchy. She wants to support me any way she can. And it was a fast friendship from there, yeah. and you know, it wasn't a it wasn't
1: a flying leap for me
3: to yeah, be like we, we uh, should have a podcast. We
1: caught a baby together when you were eight days postpartum, right? <laughs> oh my goodness, I know. that It's so full disclosure, friends listening. I was on their podcast, so Heather and Maureen, and I've already had a few minutes to chat, and I never would have guessed you've only been together as a as a duo for just two years because it seems like such a <laughs> the way that you. Interact and work off each other seems like it'd be a very deep long friendship. So clearly oh, Thank you. Yeah. No, it's, and I've listened to your podcast and I never would have guessed it was relatively recent. So that just goes to show how open you are to each other and and just kinda of holding the space for each other.
0: Oh well thank you. I mean maybe we did know each other in a past life. Who knows? <laughs> Who
1: knows? All right, let's dive in. I'm so excited to speak about PMADs and breastfeeding and ah, that whole world. So before we even get into the medicalized part of it, I keep throwing this word PMADs around. Can you describe what that is and how prevalent it is? Cause it is yeah. so abundant in this
3: community. Sure can. Um, so we're talking about perinatal mood disorders. Um, and often, sometimes we talk about perinatal anxiety and depression, but it's really like a whole spectrum of, you know, of mood disorders. So anxiety, OCD, depression, um, uh, psychosis, all kinds of stuff that really for a lot of people is triggered by pregnancy or postpartum. Um, and so the current statistics that feel like they're probably underreported um, are that one in five people experiences some kind of postpartum um, mood disorder and one in seven experiences that prenatally. Yeah. That is, those are
1: pretty astonished numbers. And then you hit on something that's reported. I mean, that's those that actually, you know, have reported it. And then I was doing a a podcast with Paige Ballenbaum from the Motherhood Center. She was thinking just from the statistics of the group that she has, she actually thinks it's more like one in three because it's not always reported. These are crazy mm-hmm. numbers, aren't they? Yeah, and also what is normal? You know, like
0: everything has changed when you've had a baby. Every, your hormones are all wackadoodled and, you know, your support system has completely changed. Your coping mechanisms have been taken away a lot of times, you know, whether you wanted them to or not. And so it's like, yes, you're experiencing some of these things, but how much of it is normal? Um, and for me, with my patients, and we do a lot of screening now that we didn't used to do, I'm not saying that the screening is perfect, but Mm -hmm. you should pretty much be getting at least screened a couple times pre, you know, in your, once in your prenatal for sure. And then every single time you have a visit postpartum, you should be getting screened for, with an Edinburgh postpartum depression score scale. Um, but for me, when I start to hear patients saying that their lives are being interrupted, by these mm-hmm. new changes um, in, in a way that's so significant that they are bringing it up to me. Like they just keep mentioning over and over again, um, you know, the way every time, for example, their milk lets down, they can't stand the state of the house and that their house, they start to see how messy it is every time they sit down to pump and, you know, they just can't pump anymore because the house is too dirty for them to pump. And I'm like, whoa, th- those things aren't, Super connected, but they are for you. So let's talk about that. So just really trying to figure out what's normal, what you can handle and how much of it might resolve with time and how much of it might not resolve with time. And we need to actually step in and do something about it.
1: Can we, can I back up and ask a little bit about what is the screening process? And then you said something I don't know. Edinburgh score.
3: Yeah. So typically the, I guess, you might consider this the objective screening that we have is the Edinburgh postpartum depression scale. You, you use it prenatally as well. It's essentially just a questionnaire and it, it's pretty similar to a lot of, um, standard depression scales that psychologists use where it's referring to the last two weeks of your life. And it's things like, you know, in the last two weeks, have you enjoyed normal activities that you would otherwise enjoy? Um, have you laughed? Have you been crying more often? and it it's the kind of thing where you know when you when you take it for the third or fourth time you're a little bit like okay why am i taking this silly 20 question test again um but it it gives us as providers a single tool to compare against you know other experiences we have with you um and we score it and say like you know you get a 6 your first time oh the second time you take it it's an 8 Okay, your third trimester, you take it and it's a 14, you know, and, and so it gives us one tool to assess you with and certainly not the only tool.
0: Yeah, it compares you against you, but it also compares you against national data. So pretty much anyone that scores above a 10 is going to be an automatic referral to um, somebody to help them, a psychotherapist, a psychiatrist, depending on what's going on and how high they score. Um, you know, even, a nurse practitioner would be great too, who who specializes in psych. So any kind of provider that they might be comfortable with, it's a referral to anyone. Like, who would you like to see? You know, mm-hmm. we are often, I do it with my patients in the lactation clinic, and we're often the first people that notice, you know, because I'm seeing somebody six times sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hey, Becky, it seems like I'm noticing that you're a little bit more sad today. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, your Edinburgh's a twelve. Would you be comfortable talking to my friend, Rachel, who's a psychotherapist about your birth trauma? Or if not, would you be willing to go, you know, oh, you already have a nurse practitioner on board that works with you and prescribes your Zoloft. I think it's time to schedule a follow-up with them and, you know, do a little check-in. You might need to up your dose, but that's something that you should talk about with them for
1: sure. I love that you do this. So is this happening at, I guess, when is this happening? Because in our typical world after baby, the person's not seeing their care provider if they do choose to do a six-week follow-up until the six weeks. So is this happening with pediatricians offering this to new parents? Where How is this happening?
3: Yeah, I wish pediatricians were doing it with new parents. And it's actually one of the reasons I typically recommend family practice to people so that they and their baby are seeing the same doctor Mm. and that doctor can administer that test during a baby visit if they need to. Um, but typically it's your OB who does it or your midwife. So you, you know, maybe you get it when you leave the hospital, maybe two weeks, maybe eight weeks. They definitely do it when you get admitted to the hospital or they should be anyway.
0: Um, (laughs) So when you get, when they go through all the admission questions, they go ahead and get a baseline for your Edinburgh and then that's your, that's your baseline for the rest of your postpartum. And they definitely do it at the six week visit, but that's why with lactation, I do it as part of my admission. So when you become a lactation patient, I want my own baseline Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to get one every single time. And I will also do it, um, in addition to that, if I feel it's necessary. So like, maybe I just saw them a week ago, but if they seem like really off, I might be like, Hey, let's, let's do it in Edinburgh yeah. and just see where we're at right now. So you can use it anytime.
1: I think it's fantastic. I know that my pediatrician just observed me and asked questions. And then mm-hmm. later on, she had told me what she was doing. She's like, I was just checking in and see how your mental state was. Like this was like a year later. I'm like, what was that right. all about? And she's like, Oh, I do that <laughs> with all my, with all my new parents. And, and she made it seem like she was just like, how is your breastfeeding going? Let me watch your latch. But she just kept me there for a good, like half an hour just to observe. And I thought that was really brilliant, but it wasn't anything detailed like this. It was more just mm-hmm. her observation. Well, given, how prevalent we know that PMADs happen to be and I love that you're doing this these screenings I think it's important to talk about medication because I think there's a bit of a stigma and I, and fear I've had a lot of students be like should I do this is my baby getting this and then feeling guilty oh no what's happening so w- will you talk a little bit about the stigma of taking antidepressants or psychotropic medication while nursing
0: Well, first of all, if we can just back up for a second, because a lot of people are already on these in pregnancy and people will often say damaging things to them about their feeding choices based on the medication they're currently on. And Mm -hmm. this includes some providers that just don't know anything about these medications and breastfeeding. Um and maybe don't know how to find those answers right away. Or honestly, sometimes it even comes from their personal preference and how they feel about medication. Mm. Um, This could be coming from grandma. You know, you you don't know who it's coming from, but a lot of these um, comments carry a lot of weight. So if you are pregnant listening to this and you are currently stable on a medication, the chances are very good you will be able to breastfeed with yeah, it.
3: Yeah. For the most part, we have more concerns about... Um, say, psychotropic medications in pregnancy than we do in lactation, the risk level for them usually goes down. Right. Can Mm -hmm. you talk more
1: about that? And I guess we should also... So again, I like to be fully transparent. When I was prepping for this and I called my husband, who's a therapist, I'm like, let's talk about the different drugs. So he explained psychotropic drugs to me. I'm like, what are all the different types? Can you explain what psychotropic drugs or medications are? Because I keep throwing that term around.
0: Well, they work in different ways. So we've got antidepressants, we've got anti-anxieties, we've got mood stabilizers and stimulants. So they work in different ways, but often we're just changing the chemical structure uh, or the way we utilize different chemicals in our brain. And um, the each of the medications have different molecular weights, which means that they can be filtered differently through the breast tissue. Um and they're utilized differently in the body. They're metabolized sometimes in different places. So, you know, the main thing that we are concerned about with the breastfeeding realm or chest feeding realm is that, you know, we're trying to limit exposure. To baby, of course, with any medication, including Tylenol sometimes, you know, you're just trying to like minimize exposure just in case while maintaining the stability of the patient and also supporting them emotionally through the
3: process right. of trying to be healthy. Mentally. Right. Because we have some very serious risks for leaving things like depression untreated, um, prenatally or postpartum. You know, I, we have a, a high association for depression in pregnancy with preterm delivery, preeclampsia, low birth weight, um, and maternal suicide. And, you know, the same with postpartum, we have issues with breastfeeding, um, issues with bonding with baby, uh, we have it, it's associated with failure to thrive for baby too. So, you know, those are some really serious risks to, to leaving this untreated. And for the most part, when we have a conversation with a patient about this, the benefits of medication treatment are probably going to outweigh the risks. Mm.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. So going back to the idea of the stigma, I like you said, some people have in their mind like, oh, I'm growing a baby. I'm not even supposed to have caffeine. How can I take this medication? And then they feel guilty, like you were talking about. It could go through the breast tissue. Can you talk more about that? that stigma of taking medication? I think you also tapped into it about how you know the depression can be even worse if it's left untreated.
3: Yeah, I I think partially, you know, that's a cultural thing here, right? And for a lot of us who were say uh raised by those in the baby boomer generation, you know, that everyone, you know, that old and older basically doesn't talk about mental health. You know, the way they were raised is you don't talk about that. It's right. not relevant, it's not appropriate to complain about your circumstances. And so You know, when we're raised thinking, okay, when we have emotions like this, we need to not talk about them. We need to pretend they're not happening and we need to move on because somebody has it worse than us. And also just to add on to that,
0: when you are standing in front of somebody sharing your suffering with them, it is often very triggering for that person who has maybe not ever resolved the trauma that they had around their birth and postpartum. And so it's like, oh, look at you using all those resources that you have. And I didn't have any of that. and No one cared about me and I still made it and look how tough I am. And there's a lot of like we can talk about this and we can solve these issues without taking away from other people's experiences and just trying to help those people understand, like, if you are that person that is feeling unheard in maybe your family unit or maybe even your provider, like, we have a lot of providers yeah. that have significant trauma around their birth that then trickles into how they care for patients and the ability for them to have bedside manner that is appropriate. Um, it, So if you're feeling like you're not being heard, try to understand that maybe you just need to not talk to that person. So like, (laughs) don't, don't stop there. So if it's the first time you've tried to talk about your trauma or the first time you've tried to get help and it didn't work the way you thought it was going to work, try again with a different human being.
3: And, and I think too, you know, sometimes it's hard to get beyond the mindset that medication is a crutch. Um, and that, getting that kind of help says something about your strength. Um, I I think a lot of us have internalized that message where taking those sort of medications uh, identifies a weakness that we should not be honest about. Um, And when really, you know, I, I, I've come a long way in thinking about that myself. And I did not get help for my postpartum depression with my first pregnancy. And right now I am on bupropion for my second uh, postpartum. And, you know, I had a a really good conversation uh, with a friend of mine who is a research neuroscientist. And he was like, look, we don't understand any of this. We don't know what levels of dopamine should be in the brain. We don't know what levels of any of this should be in the brain, but what we do know is sometimes these medications help. Sometimes taking an SSRI helps, even if we don't understand what serotonin actually does in the brain. And he's like, so you're not broken, because we don't even know what the correct level is. So how could we know what the broken level is?
1: Um, I I love that. I have to say, I I had some thoughts about... Medication. So my son was diagnosed with ADHD and at first we were like, let's just try therapy, therapy, therapy. And then his pediatrician had a conversation with me. She's like, I think it's time to look at medication. And I was like, no. And then she said, if he had diabetes, wouldn't you give him insulin? I'm like, of course. And she's like, but if he needs medication for his balance, isn't that the same thing? And I'm like, yes, it is. (laughs) <laughs> and we introduced medication for him and took a few tries and figured out the dosage. And he is a happier child and it makes him happier as our family functions better. So I admit I had a little bit of a chip in my shoulder about medication and then I could see the value in it. I'm not saying everyone, this is for, you know, everyone has to go out and get medicated, but I really can see the value in if it's helping somebody function better.
0: Well, Deb, I had the same experience and my son just started medication this past year in third grade. So our kids are at the same age, (laughs) same diagnosis. And I have to say that I was exactly the same way. And I had to identify, like, where did this chip come from on my shoulder? You know, like who put that there? You know, like why? And, and it's funny because, you know, like when we as adults are going through something, we put so much pressure on ourselves to fix it. Well, if you would just exercise more, or if you would just eat better, you wouldn't feel this way. Or if you would just stop hanging out with that person, it would be better. But when you're postpartum, sometimes you don't have those things as mm-hmm. options. And when you're a kid, you don't have those coping skills and you're not, you're not mature enough to be able to use them effectively and consistently. And so similar to our son's, who are medicated and, you know, it's your, it's a son, right? Yep. Yeah. Similar to our sons who are now medicated and stable and happy. We postpartum should be able to have that available to us also, regardless of what we are able to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and accomplish
1: yes 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 all right i'm so excited so we're gonna take a quick <laughs> break when we come back let's start talking about some of the risks versus the benefits i think there are a lot of benefits of, <laughs> of taking these medications while nursing we'll be right back
2: with
3: the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere
1: I'm just going to hand it over to you. What are some of the risks versus the benefits of taking, uh, let's say, what are they, PPA and PPD medications while breastfeeding?
3: Okay. I, I think to frame this conversation, um, I want to introduce the rating scale that we place medications on when we are having this discussion with patients. Right. Um, and, and I think that's going to help everybody listening to understand when they're having those discussions. So, um, in pregnancy, we call them P1, P2, whatever. In lactation, of course, they are L1, L2, L3, up, up to five. Um, and I'm just gonna define those for you guys, um, because it's great to know. So, one is the safest. The L1s, we know they're compatible with lactation. Um, we have, you know, pretty extensive data telling us that there's little to no risk to our, our breastfeeding babies. Um, you know, risk of harm is very small. Uh, L2s we call likely compatible. Uh, we have kind of more limited data, but we're pretty sure they're safe as well. L3s are probably compatible. Basically, we we put medications in this category when we just don't have the information. But from what we know about the medication and about that pharmacology is that it shouldn't be harmful in theory um or the theoretical risks are small or the benefits mm-hmm. outweigh the risks right mm-hmm. um then we move into the more hazardous things so l4s we call possibly hazardous um maybe we don't have information Maybe we have a little bit of information that has had like some case studies where where we've seen harm to infants. Um, or definitely some animal
0: studies yeah. with lactation where it's not gone well. And we're like, well, it didn't work out well for the rats. Yeah. So and
3: we're going to maybe not do it to the babies. And just it's, in case. it's not a complete contraindication, but we're going to have some really serious conversations before we use medications in that category. Um, and then L5s, we're like, hey, we know this could hurt your baby if you take it while you're lactating. Right. And it's, it's important to remember
0: also that we generally do not do experimental studies on pregnant and lactating people. So a lot of the research that we have is retrospective data and correlation data, which is just not the strongest evidence ever. (laughs) You know, we're not setting up a bunch of lactating people and we're like, all right, we're going to give you guys chemo pills and you guys know chemo pills and we're going to see whose baby does better. You know, it's just (laughs) not ethical. We don't do that. (laughs) So, you know, we do the best we can with the data that we have, and also just trying to understand the body mm-hmm. um, and and how things are generally filtered, similar medications that are similar molecular weights. That's why I talked about that before. Um, and just the interesting thing for me though, with going through all of this, because we're trying to move away from from using those labels too too much because the benefits to breastfeeding are so great we're finding that doing that is limiting people from accessing the significant benefits of breastfeeding based on the risk of these possibly harmful medications. Um, so we talk a lot more, and especially on on our podcast, we talk about harm reduction yeah. more than just complete elimination. So, yeah,
3: because it might be, say, you do need to take something that we have classified as an L4. Um, the options are not usually take it or wean um you know take it and wean or don't take it and suffer or whatever um you know usually we can figure something out and we can be like hey the half life of this medication is 3 hours you know if you take it right after you nurse, and then you can wait this amount of time. That's going to reduce exposure to baby. We're going to give you the tools to screen your baby, right? Like here are the possible side effects. If you see X, Y, and Z, take them to their doctor. You know, that that kind of conversation is going to be more productive and really healthier for that um, chest feeding dyad than just saying, well, you know, take the med and wean or don't.
1: Yeah, so it's not so black and white. There's a lot of gray and mindfulness about how and when it's taken.
3: Yeah, you know, and it it's hard to have just one discussion about risks and benefits, right? Because every single medication has a different discussion around that, right? Um, But would it be okay if I gave an example of like a very commonly prescribed medication? Yes, please. Okay. Because uh Zoloft is super commonly prescribed postpartum and in pregnancy. Um and it's pretty safe, but you know, let, let's just talk about like how we would have that conversation with a patient.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, great. So Okay. So we have a patient that probably comes in and maybe they've scored consistently high on their Edinburgh and we've maybe planted the seed early on about, you know, is this something that you'd be interested in talking about? Maybe they weren't ready yet. The next time they come in, they're like, hey, actually, it's unbearable for me. And, you know, tell me more about the Zoloft. What's that going to do? How's that going to look? And, you know, we like Zoloft because it's um, not very... Much there's not a lot of it that's excreted in the breast milk. So it's not one of the medications that excretes tons in the breast milk.
3: Yeah. So what we're gonna say to somebody is um it is detectable in low levels in breast milk, and the infant dosage is around one percent of the maternal dosage, which is really small. Um and it's probably going to be okay for healthy infants. If you've got a premature baby, we might want to have a different discussion about it. Or if you have a really sick baby, um, you know, baby with like a significant heart defect or something, that conversation is going to look a little bit different, right? Because they have special medical needs. Um, But for your healthy term infant, you know, this might be a good choice. Um There are a couple case reports of some like sleep issues for baby, some diarrhea, maybe some not optimal weight gain, but we're not actually sure if it's linked to those medications or not.
0: And also with Zoloft, we have a wide range of dosages that we can choose from. So it's anywhere from like 25 milligrams to 300 milligrams. And it's important to know that you need to get the dose that makes you feel stable because we don't actually have data that shows that the higher the dose, the more side effects. Mm-hmm. So that's an important thing for people to note as well, because a lot of people will try to wean themselves off of medication or at least wean down in the dosage to eliminate exposure. And that actually isn't a thing.
3: No, a lot of it's about how your particular body metabolizes it because that's different for all of us, really. It is. Um And we do have some medications where the infant dosage is super dependent on the maternal dosage and some where it's not.
1: Oh my gosh. Um, My head is spinning (laughs) listening to this.
3: Yeah. It's really complicated. (laughs) So
1: I guess I want you to go through, I love that you gave Zoloft as an example. So I want to take a beat. I do want to go through kind of the most popular, I guess that's given out, but before that you'd mentioned about Zoloft and how much is in the milk, but can you talk a little bit about how are the medications transferred to the breast milk? And I'm guessing it's from what you just said, how much the baby receives depends on the dosage and the medication. Is that correct?
0: And the pH. Yeah. That also matters (laughs) as well. (laughs) And whether or not it's water soluble or fat soluble. So here's an example of caffeine because you had mentioned caffeine a little bit earlier in the show. So caffeine is a water soluble thing and we make breast milk. We make our breast milk from our blood, not directly from the food we eat. So we eat food. It gets digested. The particles go into our bloodstream, just for layman's terms. And then our glandular tissue kind of reaches into our bloodstream. Snatches the ingredients it needs and turns it into milk. And, you
3: know, as your caffeine level in your bloodstream rises. Which, side note, caffeine is very bioavailable to us, so we actually absorb most of what we ingest.
0: Right. So as the caffeine level in our blood increases, it also increases the same in our breast milk because water soluble things flow in and out very easily, just like alcohol. Alcohol is also water soluble. So, um, as you're, that's why we don't pump and dump anymore, by the way, because if you just wait it out, the blood alcohol level will come down and then it'll get pulled right back out of your milk and into your bloodstream. So it flows in and out. But some medications are fat soluble. And so that medication gets snatched out of the bloodstream, gets stored in the fats in the milk, and it sits there forever. So those (laughs) medications we have to pump and dump. And there's very few of them. If they're harmful. If they're harmful. And there's very few of those. Mm -hmm. Um, But for the most part, it's water soluble. It's in and out. um, And based on how big the molecule is, the pH of it, all of that is, you know, that's actually above our pay
3: grade, but we do know. It is that, fascinating. It is fascinating. Totally we're fascinated by this. Like you
1: should see my eyes are like, like saucers. I'm like, tell me more. I mean, this is so
3: exciting. Yeah. But I, I think like, let me see if I can make this a little simpler. Um, when we are trying to figure out if this medication is safe or not, we're going to look at how much actually gets into breast milk. Um, how, fast it gets there after you take the medication and how fast it leaves your milk. So that would be your ha- its half-life. Um, and then we're going to look at, are there any studies done specifically on nursing parents? Are there any case reports of complications for infants whose parents were taking this medication? Um, and then does this also affect lactation? Does it affect how much milk you make? Right? I oh, um, it
1: could, could have been, yeah. and I'm just kind of shooting from the hip, like Benadryl, when I have, mm-hmm. I'm allergic to like everything. So I would take Benadryl often and I noticed that, that affected my milk production. Is it similar?
3: Yeah. So, um, the interesting thing is a lot of the antidepressants, we have some minimal reports that, they can uh boost milk production for some people which oh. is great and maybe that's just because like they are better. living a better life yeah <laughs> um but yeah certainly other medications suppress it as well and that's really something that um sometimes doctors forget to mention and um i think it can be one of the most important factors for people in considering whether or not they want to take that medication that makes a lot of sense so you mentioned zolof can you mention some of the
1: I guess the most popular, I don't know if that, or common or what are the, I
0: I will say the most recommended for lactating family. Okay,
1: there we go. Thank you.
0: So first of all, we have to say, like in general, on average, most people, when they start their journey trying to find a medication that works for them for depression or anxiety, they go through about six different ones before they find the right medication and the right dose for them where they feel good. So it's a lot of this, like playing around long process of is it going to work or isn't it going to work so whenever we're starting a medication for the first time with a lactating parent we want to start with one that we have the best data on for lactation that's going to have the least amount of side effects so usually that's zoloft or paxil mm-hmm. um so those two are very similar you know they have low molecular or they have low excretion in the breast milk, um, not a lot of side effects reported in the infant. Um, the other one we have is Prozac, which we like because we that's the OG antidepressant, right? That's the one we've had around for the longest time. So the longer it's been on the market, the more data we have. Um, so that one's really popular. We also have Lexapro, which is completely fine with lactation. Um, and then we also have Selexa, mm-hmm. And Selexa does have a couple more side effects that you could look for in baby like sleeplessness, but most of the side effects are annoyingly things that babies have all the time anyway, like gas, yeah. loose stools, wakefulness in the night, fussiness. And you're like, I don't know. Is <laughs> it just being a baby
3: or is it the Prozac? I'm not sure. Yeah. So how do you figure it out? Well, um <laughs> since I'm in the process of figuring out if my medication is working for me right now, uh the guidance I've been given from my doctor is essentially, you know, I'm I'm taking repeated depression screenings, right? Every 2 weeks. And, you know, first of all, she's like, "Of course, um keep track of any side effects for you or baby that you're concerned about, write them down." Um, and then we're going to continue these depression screenings to see if we're actually doing any, like, uh, objective improvement, right? And then also just, you know, she asked me to check in with myself, like, journal, whatever, um, and just be like, hey, you know, here's what's going on this week. And, and then to look back at my other ones so I can be like, oh, I am not having panic attacks every other day. Great. It is getting better. (laughs) You know, or like, Hey, actually, like turns out, yes, this is still the same and we need to do something.
0: And if it's still the same and baby is having some side effects, then I, as a provider, I'd say, okay, let's switch, you know, but if you're saying, Oh, I'm stable. I'm so much better. Like I no longer have suicidal ideation. Yay. That's great. But baby has increased gas. I don't care. I'm yeah. not changing that medication because the we benefits. Can add some probiotics. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're gonna do some Avivo probiotics or whatever. But you know, I am not gonna mess with the stability of a person when I know, as a provider, that it can take six tries to find the right mm-hmm. one. If we have the right one, I'm not touching it. That's
3: going back we, to the
1: risk versus benefits. Like the benefit of the parent being so much better outweighs gassy baby.
3: Yeah. And the reality is a healthy, happy parent takes better care of their baby, Mm -hmm. you know? And so we might be willing to say like, okay, yes, you know, having a lot of diarrhea for your infant is not great. Maybe they're going to get some diaper rash, but also like you're going to be so much better able to manage that if you are not in the lowest emotional place of your life. And it's not an A plus B equals C thing. So like, what if you stop that
0: medication, you're no longer stable and the diaper rash persists because it was never that medication anyway. It's just not a risk we're willing to take to rock that boat. And it's also worth noting that if you are stable on a medication in pregnancy, we're probably not going to touch it, yeah. even if it's one of our not, if it's not on our favorites list, you know, we're going to be like, all right, well, let's just see how this plays out because you're stable and messing with mood stabilizers or antidepressants or any of that postpartum is the worst time to do it.
1: It's just the mm-hmm. worst time to rock that mental boat. Do you find that people need to adjust their dosage as they move, as their hormones rebalance?
3: Sometimes I we got a lot of adjustment for dosages in the third trimester and then sometimes in the first couple of weeks postpartum but we kind of want to wait and see. <laughs> we don't want to change too many things at once, right? right. I mean, yeah, I think, it's such
1: a huge life adjustment in general, yeah.
0: I think most common we see people about a year postpartum that are like, "I feel good. Can I come off of this now?" Yeah. And it's like, "Well, I mean, if you feel like you're in a good place to to check it out and you can be willing to maybe have some low moments. And if you're, you know, obviously I'm going to recommend psychotherapy. So if you're going to be working with a therapist, if you can check in with me quite often, um, then yeah, let's try it. Because the goal is not like, all right, and now I'm going to be on this medication until I'm 90 it's let's get you on the medication so you have the energy to get back to the coping skills that had you stable before.
3: Yeah. And and I think it's worth mentioning first that we never recommend these medications without also recommending some kind of therapy. So individualized therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, whatever. Um Because we know you have to work on both parts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of recommendations about diet and exercise and lifestyle changes that can improve depression and anxiety. But sometimes we need the medication to make those changes. Right.
1: Yeah. Because <laughs> if you're super depressed, you can be like, I know I should exercise and eat better, but you may not have the ability to even take that step in that direction.
3: Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I and and I think the majority of the people we see would much rather be doing those things to cure their depression. But It's just, it doesn't always work like that, you know, and I think we have to frame this in a way that these are all tools that we have at our disposal and we're going to use the best tool for the job right now. And it doesn't have to be the only tool we use or the tool that we use forever.
1: That makes sense. So going back to breastfeeding and the medication, are there any antidepressants or psychotropic medications that are absolutely incompatible with breastfeeding?
0: Yeah, there's a few. So, I mean, lithium, which is an L4. Eh,
3: not my favorite. Yeah. And, and like a lot of the bipolar meds. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot
0: of the bipolar meds are tough. Um, Adipin is an L5, Deptran, Doxapin, Selinor, and Sinequan.
3: Yeah. I, I mean, a lot of the tricyclic antidepressants, some of those that you just listed, um, they are more dangerous during lactation. But, um, thankfully they're not the only option, but it it can be a challenge to treat people with bipolar during lactation, um, and, you know, some more complicated. Cases of depression.
0: And, you know, with those medications, just like stimulants, you know, for example, um, some of our patients are ADHD themselves and they require a stimulant to get through their day to be able to work. Now, we know that quitting your job postpartum, especially if you need the money, is not going to help you stabilize. (laughs) Like, if you need medication to help you work, that means we need to structure a breastfeeding plan around your stimulant if that's a non negotiable for you. So, a lot of times we have to not use an extended release. We have mm-hmm. to use a short-acting drug uh, maybe a couple times a day, Um that we can decrease the exposure in the breast milk that way just because we'll be able to time the half-life a little bit better because the extended release you take in the morning, it's a nice big dose and it keeps it in your milk all day long. <laughs> yeah. So it might be moving away from extended release um and some trial and error as well.
3: Yeah, and in more extreme cases, we might look at a mixed feeding plan where we have a certain time of the day, we don't breastfeed and we offer formula. Um, and then we do it a different time of day. So it, you know, there's not one plan for everybody. I really
1: love that you're just saying, let's look at the individual and make it about that person, that baby and their situation. Because I do feel like so many times it's like, Oh, you're on this. Nope. You can't have that. And then that can lead to some feelings of guilt or anger at themselves, but I want to breastfeed and I can't because of X, Y, and Z. So I I think it's so important to look at the individual. And I, I love that. That's how you, that's how you function with your clients. Is there anything else about PPA, PPD medications and breastfeeding that I haven't asked that you want to make sure that you share? Yeah.
0: I mean, if you're on the fence about it, it probably means you should do it. You should at least mm-hmm. talk to somebody about it. Um, you know, If you're at home right now and you clicked on this, first of all, and you've made it this far in the episode, congratulations, because it's actually really hard to even sit and listen to it when you are on the fence about it. Yeah. So if you've made it this far, if you're still considering it, if you feel like your suffering is actually solvable... You know, it's like the Zoloft isn't going to change your husband, pal, you know, like if he's, if he's not working out, I mean, it's not going to fix that, but it might help you to develop some coping skills to get you to couples counseling, you know? So like, if this is the next right thing for you to do, then please do it and don't ignore it. And if, you know, my biggest thing, if you didn't get the answer you wanted, go find someone else to talk to.
1: That is amazing. Okay, we're going to take one more break. When we come back, if you can think of one final tip or piece of advice you'd like to offer new or expectant parents, we'll be right back.
2: 18 plus. Okay. We're back. So I have two of you. So each of you
1: <laughs> get a little extra, a little double here. So one tip or piece of advice, all right, Heather and then Maureen. Oh, I was hoping you'd do her first. I think her first. Okay, Maureen and then Heather. There
3: we go. We're so flexible here. Okay. Well, I think that the, I have kind of a two part thing. Um, one of the most important things that I tell people I'm working with is that we want to really protect the postpartum and give yourself room to fail. And I know that that might sound a little negative, but let me explain. Um We are all a disaster in the first two months <laughs> postpartum uh, in, in so many ways. And I think that we just have to plan for it. You know, we have to make sure that we get appropriate time off work appropriate support from from partners, friends, family, you know, because maybe your postpartum is going to be amazing and you're full of energy and you love everything, but probably not. So it's okay just to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to flop on my face. I'm going to be up every two hours. I'm going to be nonstop feeding this baby and it's going to be a mess. So just make that plan. I like that. (laughs) And then it's going to be okay. Um, And then the other part of it is plan that for weaning too. Mm. Um, Because the hormonal change from weaning can be just as wild to experience as those first couple weeks postpartum.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Okay, Heather. my, My tip is that. A lot of people will say when they're sitting in the depths of their postpartum depression or anxiety, I didn't see this coming. Like, I just didn't think it would happen to me. And it's funny though, because with that same person, if you pull up a checklist of risk factors for postpartum depression, they meet like 75% of the things on the checklist. And it's like, we never want to think that we are the ones that are being tapped for a certain predicament. You know, it's like we're, we're always doing the best we can. I would say most people in general are optimists. You know, we don't get pregnant because we're like, eh, it's going to be terrible. I should do this. (laughs) You know, you, you get pregnant in hopes that it's going to be amazing. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. I'm going to be, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be good at this. (laughs) And you know, really, because of research and because people do care about this a lot, they've put together some pretty reliable checklists of criteria that do put you more at risk yeah. for postpartum depression and anxiety, which are available online. Um, and we can share it with you, Deb, if you like. We can yeah. find a good one for you and, and email it mm-hmm. to you to share with your people. But, you know, I know from my personal experience with postpartum depression, When I went through the checklist, I was, I was at that point where I was on the fence. Do I do meds or do I not do meds? And you're standing there looking at a checklist and you're like, Oh my God, it's me. 10 out of 10. (laughs) And you know, if you can prepare for that in pregnancy, I highly recommend that you talk to your provider who maybe didn't catch it, but you can catch it. Like so many people are their own advocates these days. People are so smart. And if you are like, Hey, I noticed that actually I just moved. Um, my partner and I are, you know, financially insecure and I actually had, uh, the biggest risk factor is actually having an episode of depression in pregnancy. You know, so if you're already experiencing depression in pregnancy, that is the biggest risk factor. So, you know, just bring it to the forefront of your mind that it's like, hey, it could happen. So let's talk about this before there's a screaming child in your face Mm -hmm. and see if we can't put a plan together. Um, Getting ahead of it is basically what I'm saying.
3: You know, I think a lot of us ignore risk factors Mm -hmm. and kind of separate ourselves from the possibility of a mental health issue because our society attaches a morality to that. Mm -hmm. And we really need to work on, you know, on what we've internalized from that in separating morality from depression, from mm-hmm. mental health. I mean, that brings it's, us back to how we started
1: talking about the stigma. And you're, yep. you know, you're, we kind of came full circle with that. And also, when we talked about the statistics, one in five, or maybe even one in three, again, these are, there's a strong chance that many of our listeners would check many of the boxes. Yeah.
0: Yep. And and knowing also which boxes they are, because there might be something you can do about
1: a box or two of
0: those. You know, like,
1: can I fix this now before I'm tired and (laughs) sleep-deprived? Oh, this is such great advice. Where can people find your work? Well, we would love to
0: have you over at the Milk Minute Podcast if you are currently (laughs) lactating or planning to lactate and you want to hear more about that. Um, We have so many heavy-hitting topics about Alcohol, caffeine, like any question you have, we do deep dives into all of those specific
3: yeah. topics. And we're on, I think, every podcast player you can find. Um, and you can find us on Instagram at milk underscore minute underscore podcast and the same on TikTok. Um, we're on Facebook. We have a Facebook group as well. And we both do private lactation consults. So even if you're
0: not with us in person, you can access telehealth with us at any time. And I take I do take some insurance.
1: So, Fantastic. Awesome. I will make sure I have all of that information in our show notes. And I also just wanted to shout out, I hope Maya is listening. I don't know if she is, to Maya Co, who connected me with you. She's one of our community members. In fact, she did a podcast. Her birth story is part of our community. So um, thanks, Maya, for this connection. I hope you're listening. <laughs> I love Maya.
3: Thank yeah, you so she's much. she's one of our patrons. Do, Do you know love she her?
1: dances <laughs> on the sides of buildings? Stop! What? <laughs> I knew she danced the side the of the building, but I did not. Okay, oh my so goodness. go listen to her. Go listen to her community birth story, because she explains okay. it. And when she said that, I'm, I, for some reason my head turned sideways and I'm just like visualizing her <laughs> on the side of a building, and then she sent me the links. They're amazing, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did you know that she doesn't have furniture in her house, and her and her husband and child they just they sit on the floor for their meals, oh, and wonderful. they're like so healthy and inspirational. Okay. And I like- didn't
1: know that was official, but because she does classes at home, like she'll do the the live stream, uh-huh. I've seen into her living room, and <laughs> I noticed a lack of furniture. But I just assumed <laughs> it was because thing- I like how things are clicking into place. I just assumed <laughs> because that was where they wanted like baby to have all the space. I didn't know it was a conscious decision.
3: Wow. Well, <laughs> We're big fans, Maya. Thank All you. right. All so when she comes to class
1: on Wednesday, I'm going to have to be like, let's talk about your furniture or the lack thereof.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, the, the reason I
0: didn't have furniture with my son is be- my, my ADHD son when he was little is because he would constantly crack his head off of things or break things. So I was like, you know what? I I have nothing but a couch now and this is just what's happening. But I, I think her way is a little bit more romantic and purposeful.
1: Oh, I'm so excited to speak with her about this. All right. Well, I wanted to thank you so much because this was, I found this really fascinating and I hope our community did as well. So thank you for your time and your expertise.